0: Some of you may have uh, followed this story as it was reported on CTV News, but there was a uh, a woman who only wished to be identified by her first name, Anat. And over the course of her life, she had um, she had saved her money and been uh, uh, been faithful in preparing for her retirement. And now into her retirement, she uh, found herself having you know, uh, uh, saved up a million dollars, uh, but having many, many worries. Uh, she worried about the economy. Uh, there had, she had in her lifetime experienced many of the ups and downs of uh, economic uh, uncertainty and that caused her to worry. Uh, she was also worried about banks because she'd had some, some bad experiences with banks and she didn't really know how much she could trust them. She also worried about her family, uh, never knowing how much she could trust them. How much should I tell them? And she did what many people will do with their many worries, and she decided to take them into her own hands and to try to, try to deal with them and confront them as best she could. What she decided to do was to take her million dollars in American dollars and Israeli shekels and stuff them into her mattress. Um, all over her mattress, in the inside of her mattress, she had managed to uh, hide her money there. And for, for a time, I, I imagine, she felt a measure of relief. Um, as she lay down to sleep at night, she knew that her money was never far from her. Uh, she knew where it was. And that gave her a measure of relief from the anxiety and fear and worry that she would otherwise have felt. What she didn't count on, however, was how loving and generous her daughter was. Because on one, one of her many visits, her, her daughter uh, sat on her mother's bed and thought, this is an awfully lumpy mattress. And being a loving and faithful uh, daughter, she decided... I'm going to surprise my mother. And she went out and had a new mattress delivered. And um, thought, when my mother comes home, she'll see this new mattress, and she will be thrilled with me. And when the delivery people came to deliver the new mattress, the old one, she had uh, taken away. And uh, she reports, they report that when the mother came home and saw the mattress, she screamed in horror, <laughs> uh, recognizing and realizing that her her old mattress, lumpy as it was, with a million dollars uh, hidden in it, had already by this point been taken to taken to the uh, the dump. The uh, newspaper article in uh, the the Israeli newspaper shows, in fact, a, a picture of the daughter at one of the two dumps in this particular city scrambling, looking around, uh, desperately in search of an old, lumpy mattress. But at the time of the news article, no discovery had been reported. Nothing had been found. I I think of, Anat, when I think of the fact that so often when we take our worries into our own hands and seek to deal with them, often we make things worse rather than better, right? Right? Uh, we, many people have, have uh, strategies for trying to deal with the worry and anxiety in their life, and often they're not very uh, helpful strategies. Uh, people will, will turn in, all of us, right? We, we turn in a bunch of different directions when we're faced with worry. Some people will, will turn to alcohol. Uh, some people will turn to comfort food, Right? Uh, some people will, will turn to entertainment, to the internet, to sin, to uh, different things that we think, maybe this will fix it. Maybe this will help me not to think about it or have to deal with it. The Bible is very concerned about our worries and anxieties, and concerned in particular about how we, do, how we deal with them. Uh, concerned enough that God would actually give us commands not to worry but not just commands, but to also give us a plan and power to uh, to deal with it. And uh, we have been, all, all through the fall, we have been in this book of Philippians in a series called Inextinguishable Joy. And as we come to today's passage, we're looking at a passage where God confronts our worries. And we look at how to lay hold of God's peace in three areas. It will We'll look at his peace in our relationships, in our hearts, in our minds, uh, and we're going to read those uh, three sections uh, of today's passage uh, in turn. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me. We're in uh, Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to start, start us off by reading verses 1 to 5. Now, Philippians 4 verses 1 to 5. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is the word of God. Now, if I were to have you close your eyes for a moment and picture peace. Picture a scene of peace. Probably many of you would have different different scenes in your mind. Maybe one person has a picture of just a beautiful uh, field of flowers. Or maybe someone would picture a uh, a calm lake or, or, a, or a beachside uh, setting. Maybe we've got some winter people who've got s- picturing in their minds some snow-capped, snow-capped mountains. Chances are, though, that a majority of you would have a picture, a wonderful, tranquil scene without any other people in it. Because often it's the people that in our lives that are, are a source of some of the tension that we feel, some of the anxiety that inevitably comes. When I speak with many of you about challenges at work, very seldom about the technical side of my job. I'm just not able to do it. It's almost inevitably there's this person, there's a co-worker, there's a a boss, an employer. Uh, It's often the people side that causes the stress. And if we don't have a plan to deal with uh, the 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 difficult relationships that inevitably come in our lives, we are not going to live lives that are marked by peace. And this passage will have us reorient our, our lives to, to think about our relationships. Specifically, to, to seek peace in our relationships, the call is to drop the pettiness, to recognize the big things in life and recognize them as big, and so in turn to see some of the smaller things that will cause in our relationships and to see them as small. So to seek peace in our relationships, we need to drop the pettiness. Now we're introduced to a conflict in Philippians uh, that that existed in the church in Philippi in verse two, and two women by the name of Euodia and Syntyche. It's significant that Paul mentions their names because often there's all kinds of conversations and disputes and, and things going on in Paul's letters with nobody named. Paul has a habit of uh, not naming his enemies, but naming and lifting up and honoring his friends and co-workers. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, according to verse 3, these are two women who labored side by side with Paul in the ministry. Uh, that, that term is often used of uh, athletes who compete together, or warriors who would, uh, who would strive side by side in in battle together. So these were mature believers. And, and, and the reminder here is if Euodia and Syntyche, the co-workers of Paul, could find themselves in conflict, then probably you and I, uh, that, that all of us could, could find ourselves at some point in time in different forms of, uh, of conflict and, and relational tension. So Euodia and Syntyche, were, they were faithful servants, uh, they were loved and respected, and they were so loved and respected that Paul decides not to write a letter to them individually. He writes a letter to the church about their conflict. And he does that because when people in the body of Christ have a conflict with each other, it's not just a, an individual thing. It affects the whole body. When, when, when two people in, in the body are at odds with each other, we all suffer. We all feel their sickness. We, we all limp along until there is reconciliation and unity. And so if you're here this morning at odds with someone, if there is, if there is tension and conflict with someone else here, we, we all feel the negative consequences of that. And so Paul addresses the letter to the church about this conflict between two of his uh, dear former co-workers. Paul's approach to resolving their conflict is at once profound, but also seemingly simplistic. In verse 2, he just says, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. He doesn't pick sides. He doesn't say, you, you kind of got it a little bit wrong here. Syntike is actually the, in the right in this argument. He, he doesn't pick sides. He doesn't explain who's right and who's wrong because likely this wasn't an issue of right and wrong so many of our conflicts and arguments ultimately aren't about right and wrong. If it was an issue of someone teaching false doctrine, Paul would have confronted that head on as he often does in his letters. But it's likely not about that or even something significant between them. It was likely an issue of preference. I like to do things this way. You like to do things that way. They were were both active in ministry and they probably thought, I think that uh, things should be done in a different way, handled in a different manner. And it was at that level of preference that their relationship had broken down. And Paul says, agree in the Lord, work it out. Uh, Come to a compromise, come to a sense of uh, recognition that these are small things that separate you. These are small things that can be resolved. And he does what we sometimes need to do as well, to bring someone else into the conversation to help us work it out. He, he calls on his, uh, his loyal companion, his uh, fellow, fellow worker, and asks for uh, his help in, in sorting things out together. He also helps them put th- puts things into perspective. Because in verse 3, he reminds them that they've served together in the past. He also re- reminds them that ultimately it's the gospel at stake. That there is something important making Christ known, and there's some things that are not important, like there's small differences with each other. He says, Agree in the Lord about that because this thing called the gospel is far more important. He also points them points him in verse 3 back to the fact that their names are in the book of life. These are big things. The gospel is a big thing. Making Christ known, having your name written in his book, those are all big things. The, the petty preferences and uh, hurt feelings that can come in the natural course of our relationships, those are small things. Agree in the Lord, put them behind you. Then in f- verses 4 and 5, he calls for <coughs> joy and reasonableness. As. The idea here is, in his, his call in verse 5, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's calling them to find their joy in Christ so that when they get into the relationship and there are some more petty things that they're dealing with, they will have the strength to deal with them. That's, they, they've got their joy in Christ, so if they, they have to compromise on some smaller issues, they'll have the strength to do that. Then in verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness reasonableness be known to everyone. He he uses a word that's translated as gentle every other time it occurs in the New Testament. And the idea here is that they're called to be reasonable, to be approachable, to be flexible. The kind of person that you can speak to and they're not going to fly off in, in an emotional uh, outburst they 're not going to be so deadlocked in their preferences and uh, opinions over small things that they can't can 't be reasoned out they can 't be spoken to there 's a, a a gentleness that he calls them to so if people are involved we see in the, in their lives there's we can 't avoid the conflict there's there, it 's it's going to be there but we need to put the Big things in, in big context and remember that the small things are ultimately small. They, they shouldn't stand between us and we should be able to agree in the Lord. So we looked at how to seek peace in our relationships, but to seek peace in our heart, then the conversation goes in a different direction. and Paul will give a different prescription and here it's a call to prayer. That to seek peace in our heart, we need to get on our knees and so if, you're, if you've got Philippians 4 in front of you, I will now read from verses 6 to 7. In the, the, the charge to seek peace in our heart, we're to get on our knees. Paul writes this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, because of the popularity of Amazon's Kindle, we understand better today how people read books and actually how people read the Bible than we ever had, were able to, to know before. One of the statistics they've come out with is uh, the most highlighted, they they've sometimes will release the most highlighted passages in uh, books in general, but they've also relate, released the most highlighted passage in the Bible. Interestingly, it's not John 3.16. It's not the 23rd Psalm. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's today's passage. It's, in fact, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. That's probably significant because it tells us something of the power of that's in, in these verses, how precious they have uh, been to so many people, it also probably speaks to the worry and anxiety of our generation. We m- worry more than uh, probably previous generations have. You, because of 24-7 news and, and the internet, you know about scandals and wars and uh, things that are happening, atrocities that are taking place at the other end of the world instantly. We are connected to to pain and misery and tragedy and suffering like we've never been before. And it can create fear and worry and anxiety in us. So let's consider what the Bible says to do with all that worry. Verse 6 starts with a command, Do not be anxious about anything. God is concerned enough about our worry that he commands us to stop it like he commands us to stop lying and stop stealing, we are commanded to stop worrying. But he gives an antidote to it, that instead of worrying, we are called to pray. When we worry, the reason, the reason that he, he exchanges these two different words is because when we worry, what we are doing is taking God's domain and bringing it into our own. We're taking on issues and things in our lives and working and trying to fret and figure out how do we get our way in this particular situation? Well, what we do in prayer is almost the opposite. In prayer, we put the situation into God's hands, not our own. And instead of fretting and strategizing and worrying about how we get our way, we seek God's way in this particular situation. We bring our anxieties and our worries to him. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 makes this invitation. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you or lift you up, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In prayer, we humble ourselves in the recognition that it is God, not us, that's in control. He's the one who will ultimately bring a resolution or a solution to whatever it is that is on our hearts. We humble ourselves beneath him. We lift him up. And when we do so, people become small. We become small. Our solutions and, and our uh, understanding of, of how, to, how to figure out and, and walk through this situation become small. And God becomes big. We recognize that he's the one that matters. Ultimately, that it is his will that we are are, are seeking. If you look at verse 7, God invites us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. God gladly bears our burdens because, as we've said, when we take those burdens on ourselves, we're taking God's role on ourselves. We're doing something that we're, we're taking his job, and so he gladly asks us to give it back to him, to give him our worries, because when we do so, we put him back in control over something that we can't control. Corey Ten Boom once wrote something I found interesting. She she said, when I, when I worry, I go to the mirror and say to myself, this is a strange prescription, but she said, I say to myself this tremendous thing which is worrying me is beyond a solution. It's especially too hard for the Lord Jesus Christ to handle. And she said, after I've said that, I smile and I'm ashamed of myself and recognize how foolish I've been. And and she puts it into words because when we're worrying, that's really what we're communicating to God and, and to ourselves. This is something that's just impossible and God couldn't possibly handle this or or deal with it, and and so I've got to I've got to worry and come up with a solution because God needs helping out in the situation. As I think of times in my life, I, I don't think I've ever gone to the mirror like Corey Ten Boom did, but probably the most effective prayer that I have prayed, and I've prayed it in all of the major crises that I've I've faced, probably in the last ten years. My prayer has been, God, you're in control, not me. And, and, and so whatever you want to do in this situation, I'm just, I'm just releasing my hand over it, my control over it. Show me what my part is, God, but I'm going to trust your part to you. I'm going to trust that you will be faithful to do what you, are, what you do, you just show me what my part is and however you want this to end up I'm totally fine with it I'm I'm not totally fine with it but I'm, I'm struggling to be fine with it you know it, it's that sense of letting go and entrusting God's work to God and asking what's my part in this and with the knowledge that the results are in his hands where they always ought to be Now, verse 6 gives a little more detail about how to pray. It says, In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Although I said that prayer was relinquishing control, it's not that God doesn't want us to ask for stuff. He does. We can pray about anything, and we can ask for anything, but it's a recognition that he doesn't want us just to ask about everything. The verse says to bring our prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It's counterintuitive in a sense because when we're in a trial, like you've been there, I've been there. When you're in the midst of a trial and you're freaking out and saying, God, what am I going to do here? You're not thinking of anything to give thanks for, right? Like all we're thinking of is what's wrong and how desperate our situation is. He said, in that moment, you'll give thanks In that moment, you remember all that Christ has done for you. All that you enjoy because of Christ's death on the cross. At that moment, you remember all of the riches in Christ. And when you see how big and how much that Christ has done for you, then when you bring your comparatively little request to him, it seems little. It it finally seems little in comparison to all his goodness. And so we're called to to uh, come with thanksgiving and to remember, God's got me this far. Surely he's not going to hang me out to dry. Surely he's not going to forget me. He's faithful. And we can remind ourselves that he's faithful. God not only invites us to bring him our worries, he promises us his peace. In verse 7 he says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't say that God will give you everything that you asked for right away. We'd like him to say that. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that because a lot of things that we ask for are stupid. We, we don't know what to ask. We don't, we don't understand the complexity and the details of the situation. We ask for some things that we're just not ready to receive an answer for. and Sometimes the answer is not yet. Uh, you're kind of in the ballpark. It's not a bad prayer. It just, you're just not ready for that yet. Or, or it's just not part of... My, my timing in, in, in your life at this, at this point. So we don't know exactly how or when God will answer our prayers, but we are promised that he will visit us with his peace. Peace is that, that rich shalom peace of, that, that gets developed throughout the Old Testament. It's that sense of security and well-being and fullness and abundance. It, it's that that, that peace that guards us. And he uses the, the, the language of guarding your hearts because at this point he's chained to a, uh, an imperial guard, an imperial soldier, and he knows the, the strength and, and the, the, the toughness that, that comes with that. And he said the peace, the shalom peace of God is like that soldier. It's like that, that strength surrounding you. For me, the great picture of this in the Old Testament is of Daniel. Daniel had some rough co-workers. If you've got some problems with uh, some people at work, Daniel had probably worse, right? He had, he had co-workers conspiring to bring him down. and So much so that they, they went to the king and they plotted a specific plan to ruin Daniel. And the plan was that for 30 days, nobody prays to anyone other than the king. And for most of the people in the kingdom, not a problem. But it says in, in Daniel 6 verse 10, when Daniel hears about this, he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And you and I are reading that and you're like, and what on earth is he giving thanks for? Like this is the worst possible scenario I could possibly imagine. And not only is he praying at at risk of his death, but he is praying with thanks? Like giving thanks for that? What What is he thinking of? But as he's Praying to God, he is recounting in his mind all of God's faithfulness, all of God's goodness, all that he's enjoyed in Christ. And as he recounts that in his mind, it fills him with the peace of God and the understanding God's in control of this situation as well. God is not left me. God is faithful. And having prayed that prayer and having sought the peace of God, it describes then when he is thrown into the lion's den. Daniel spends the night there in peace. But it also talks about another person. It talks about the king, who is the most powerful person in the kingdom, supposedly, who is living in the luxury of the palace. And it just says of the king, who didn't know the God of peace, who didn't pray to, uh, to his, Daniel's God, it says of that king, that he was much distressed, and he spent the night without sleep. We seek the God of peace, and we will experience his peace even when things get worse, even when we're thrown in with the lions, or we will take matters into our own hands, trust in our own strength and resources, and we can be living in the palace and living with our anxiety and our fear, a little bit like Anat on her lumpy mattress. So we talked about peace for our relationships, talked about peace for our heart, and finally the passage lands on God's peace for our thoughts. And so if you'd follow along, I'll read verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here the reminder is that prayer is important, but if we are not renewing our minds in God's word and in the goodness of his creation, we will inevitably find it difficult to maintain his peace. To seek peace in our thoughts, we need to mind our minds. Now, the Bible regularly reminds us that lasting change comes from the inside out. That's why verse 8 gives us a long list of things to think on. We're to feed our minds with things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. The more we think like the world, the more we will react like the world. The more we absorb our world's values, the more we will respond to our situations with the worry and anxiety of our world. And so we're called to renew our minds. Uh, Romans 12, 2 is famous for for that that saying, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. It's that call to have our minds changed as we reflect on God's word, as we read God's word, as we commit God's word to memory as we discuss it and talk about it, as we let it infiltrate who we are and how we respond to the world around us. And so I would encourage you to do that. If you're not reading and reflecting, that's why we walked through the E100 as as a church family, getting people into God's word for themselves. But I'd encourage you to look for other opportunities as well. Look for for good podcasts and, and opportunities to to grow in your understanding of God and his his world. Uh, Look for Christian music that will point your heart to praise. Look for opportunities in the world around you to lift your heart to to God and to his word. But if you look back at Philippians 4.8, you'll see that Paul isn't just talking about the Bible or even just Christian influences. Notice the word whatever. It's repeated six times and it's followed by The words any and anything. And the point seems to be that we need to look for the good all around us. That if all that we do is spend a few minutes with God and his word in the morning and then go about our day never training our mind to think upon the good and to discern the beauty and the excellence and the praiseworthiness of the world around us, then inevitably, our without a filter, we will just let the culture wash over us. And we will respond as the culture does. So the call here, I believe, is to wonder at all of the things that are not messed up and wicked and evil in our world. We are to look for the things that are good and worthy and praiseworthy in our world. We're to reflect on the beauty of God's creation as we go about our day. To look for what is excellent in music, and the arts. To think about godly examples of people around you. Even just as you go about your day, as you return to work, you look for what is good in people. Look for what is good in our nation. Look for the things that are worthy of praise as you look around us. We probably can't touch on this area of our mind and what we feed our mind without reminding ourselves not just to look onto the good, but to guard our minds against so much that is evil. Uh, in Psalm 101 verse 3, David vowed, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And the fact is, in our, in our information age, we are bombarded with things that are not just useless, but downright evil. And so as a, as a believer, if you don't have a strategy, if you don't have clear boundaries, if you don't have filters to get the evil out of your mind and, and off of, out of your, your eyes and, and uh, uh, a real strategy to deal with that, it begins to infiltrate how you think, how you see uh, the world around us. So to seek peace in our thoughts, we need to mind our minds. Now, everything that we've said up until this point could leave someone confused, I think, about the Bible's real teaching on this. Because you could go away thinking, okay, Philippians 4, this passage teaches me how to get the peace of God. But in doing so, we could mistake the gift for the giver. We could... In seeking the peace of God, me miss the God of peace. And so I I love the fact that verse 9 ends us there in our passage today. In verse 9, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you hear anything I've heard this morning, hear this. We are not called to just seek the peace of God we are called to also seek the God of peace. The peace of God is just a gift from his hand, but we are to called to look to the one who gives us peace. We need to seek the, the, the God of peace because the God of peace is not like any of the other people in your life. The God of peace doesn't get freaked out about things the way you and I do. The God of peace looks at the same circumstances that you see in your life and he sees them through eyes that are at rest, that are calm and assured and secured. And you need to spend time with this God of peace to be able to see your world the way he sees it. The God of peace isn't high strung. He doesn't give in to anxiety. The God of peace is never in a rush. And he's not afraid to take some rest. The God of peace doesn't wring his hands or break out into a sweat. And that's because he rules this world and he has a good plan. He's wise in a way that you and I are not wise. And he sees this world and he has a plan even for the mess, even for the evil, even for the stuff that we just didn't, w- wish didn't exist. He has a good and gracious plan for that. And so we can trust him with it. And when we seek the God of peace and we spend more time with him, we begin to enter into his shalom rest. We begin to experience his peace, but it's, it's not a peace that's divorced from him. It's a peace in fellowship with him. That peace with God, the scripture says, comes through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We don't just get the peace of God and run with it without faith in Jesus. We don't just steal the peace of God without entering into a relationship with the God of peace. And so if you don't know the God of peace, I want to encourage you to come to him through faith in his son. And if you do know the God of peace, don't think that the solution to your problem is either you just trying to fix it or to just steal some abstract peace somewhere from God by applying some principles. We get the peace of God by seeking the God of peace, by seeking his face and seeking the growing depth of a relationship with him. Let's seek his face now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of peace. And we confess as we look at our our world, and as we look at some of the circumstances of our lives, we need your peace more than ever. I pray that you would help us with our conflict, help us with the people who would otherwise rob our joy. Help us to remember that we can't change the people around us, but help us to do our part in changing ourselves. Help us to work at humility and gentleness. Help us to focus on how generous you've been and not make a big deal of the little things that would eat at our joy. Help us to pray instead of worrying and to pray with thanksgiving for all you've done. For we worship you as the God of peace. In Jesus' name.